We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. On 10 July 1976, just Days after America had finished celebrating Independence Day, a new song got its first airing on the radio. Its title was Afternoon Delight. Bill Danoff wrote it. He'd been inspired a few years before after he and his wife, Taffy Nivert, had performed as Bill and Taffy and Fat City at a restaurant known as Clyde's of Georgetown in Washington, D.C. in 1974. When they'd finished their performance and were getting ready to leave, they noticed that the restaurant had tents outside for their patrons, which were promoted with a sign which read, Afternoon Delights. The duo had a truck record as songwriters, a pretty damned good one, actually. They'd written a song that John Denver thought was worth recording. You might know it, too. It was called Country Road. Their singing talents, though, left a lot to be desired, to do justice to this new song. So they looked for and found some people with real singing talent, plus them, and out of these people they formed the Starland Vocal Band. Afternoon Delight was the only hit that the Starland Vocal Band ever had. Its other attempts to put songs out there after this stunning hit all failed. After five years, the band folded, but not before they'd achieved striking success at the Grammy Awards the year the song was released. They won the gongs for New Artist, Vocal Arrangements and Song of the Year. Three out of the five they'd been nominated for. And perhaps best of all, thanks to their dismal follow-up failures, they also won a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wing for One Hit Wonders. The song got a major new lease of life when it featured in the 2004 movie phenomenon Anchorman, the immortal story of that great newsreader Ron Burgundy. Afternoon Delight had life breathed into it again when Ron told his ignoramus buddies what love is, having fallen madly in love with Christina Applegate, what man wouldn't. But in this program I'm going to be focusing on skyrockets because they go up quickly and come down quickly. And the man in this program definitely looked like a skyrocket. And that was only wishful thinking, sadly. Germany, after World War I, found itself a republic and a democracy, neither of which its people wanted. This was all new, and it all came out of what happened at the end of the First World War and was forced on the Germans by the victorious Allies. If you were a German back in those critical days, the first thing the returning German soldiers from the trenches did was to be paraded through the streets of Berlin as if it was a victory parade. The mayor made a public speech telling them that they were returning undefeated. 
Today we're used to lies from our leaders and activist groups, but perhaps they weren't so used to it back then in 1919. Some people will tell you that no harm can come from that sort of lie that helps, unjustifiably, to build up your self-esteem. Don't believe them. So it was a given for many people in Germany, thanks to the kind-hearted, well-intended, but disastrous speech by the mayor, that Germany hadn't been actually beaten in World War I. This was something that the Germans wanted to believe, and they did. And this innocent little lie was going to destroy them, their country, and kill 60 million people. Pretty well everyone of every political persuasion, from the far left to the far right, and those two really end up holding hands when you get to the extremities, hated the new democratic government. And if they were in politics, they were plotting for the government's downfall. If you were an ordinary person in the street, you'd have been hoping that what politicians wanted, what you wanted, would happen. The end of the Weimar Republic. A fairly insignificant corporal who lingered on in the army after the war was over was sent along by the army to spy on another new right-wing party called the German Workers' Party. A spy should remain inconspicuous at all times. This spy, frustrated by the incompetence of these nincompoops, couldn't hold himself back. He stood up, went to the front of the meeting and made a speech, and by all accounts, a pretty damned good one. Soon he found himself as its leader. He decided to trade in spying so that he could try his hand at something new. This was undoubtedly a good thing for the world of espionage, but a bad thing for everyone else. A lot of things that he wanted to happen for Germany were commonly shared views among everyone. In truth, there wasn't a lot that was original in the German Workers' Party ideologies, which grew up to become the Nazi Party. But what was really different with the party was its leader, a man who everyone described as having remarkable charisma as a public speaker, and whose blue eyes for those who met him face to face were always described as drawing you irresistibly to him. Being in his presence was enough for most people to become his willing slave. Through the ruthlessly efficient organisation of his party, just read the brilliant and terrifying book by Richard Evans, The Coming of the Nazi Party, the leaders of the Nazi Party were not to be treated casually as just being violent and dumb, with no small amount of help from the Great Depression, Hitler's party became attractive to a lot of voters. Very attractive. But it was a little too freaky-deaky in a lot of things that it put forward as its policies. A lot of people were repelled by the Nazis too. The communists were ultimately the same deal as the Nazis, and since the Bolshevik takeover in Russia, the leaders of the German Communist Party took their instructions from Moscow. Once the Great Depression hit, the Nazi party's rise was dramatic. In 1928, before it happened, they'd won just 12 seats and 2.6% of the popular vote. In 1930, with the Depression really kicking in, they won 107 votes and 18.3% of the vote. That was nine times better than just two years before. 
Then in July 1932, they won 230 seats and 37.3% of the vote, making the Nazi party the biggest party in Germany. In just four years, that increased their vote 40-fold. But all good things, or bad things in this case, must come to an end. A few things especially started to undermine the Nazi party. The economy started to come good. The elections that were being held frequently because no one leader or party could get a majority to govern the country began to cripple the finances of the Nazi party. It had come close to getting into power after the July 1932 elections, but Hitler was an outsider to the main people who wielded power in Germany. None of them wanted to have a bar of him. Still, because he was the leader of the largest party in the parliament, he had been offered the position of vice-chancellor of Germany. Pretty well anyone who had their heads screwed on right would have taken this. It would have given some real legitimacy to the party. But it wasn't what Hitler wanted. He only wanted a few cabinet positions in any new government. But they were the decisive ones. He knew that he needed to get power in a way that it could never be taken back out of his hands. Well, until after 60 million people had paid with their lives. The Chancellor's job was absolutely essential for where Hitler wanted to get to. It was the sine qua non, the absolutely indispensable thing he had to have. When Hitler turned down the offer of becoming Vice-Chancellor, a serious breakdown of morale and support for the Nazi party started to gain momentum. And it was about to get a whole lot worse for the Nazi party and for the members of the party. To a lot of party members, especially those at the top who wanted to get their hands on some power, Hitler had blown it. A second election was called for November 1932. Where on earth would the Nazi party get the money to fight this election? It had been well cashed up for the election earlier that year, but a second election? The results when they came out, may have looked good to some people, but Goebbels certainly saw them as they really were. Catastrophic. The Nazi party won 196 seats and 33.1% of the vote, but this time they'd lost 34 seats and 4.2% of the vote. For the first time since 1938, it looked like the Nazi party was tanking, a good word to use for a country that was soon to make tank warfare into something the world and history will never forget, Blitzkrieg. To many of his supporters, including some really key ones, Hitler's chances of ever coming to power now looked dim to impossible. If only he'd accepted the position of vice-chancellor when it had been offered. Maybe his political judgment wasn't all that his supporters thought it was. A lot of people now left the party. Donations drastically dried up and worse was about to happen. Hitler was the ultimate gambler, but was he any good at it was the question that his supporters, especially his most important supporter, was asking. There's an expression describing something as Byzantine. It means plotting where there's extreme complexity. 
things happening at many levels with many different people having different aims. Right now, this person might help you, but tomorrow you might want to get rid of them. The German Weimar Republic heading into the 1930s before Hitler came to power was definitely Byzantine. The most powerful political figure in Germany was held by its president, Paul von Hindenburg. He was very un-Byzantine. During the latter part of World War I, he'd been the virtual ruler of the country. He'd won some staggering military victories against the Russians at the start of the war. After the war, his reputation remained intact. He was a living legend. In 1925, he returned to political life when he stood for and won the election to become the German president. He held that office until his death in 1934. Hindenburg was not the most politically astute man, though. The intrigues of the German politicians were about matters that he had no understanding of. The outstanding importance of Hindenburg for Hitler if he was to become the Chancellor, was that under the Constitution, the President had extraordinary powers by which he could allow Germany to be ruled by the Chancellor without the need to call the Parliament, the Reichstag. That was something worth having. That was the reason to only accept the office of Chancellor and not the worthless office of Vice-Chancellor. The intrigues for the position of Chancellor had seen Heinrich Brüning become Chancellor. His main supporters had been the Minister for Defence, Kurt von Schleicher and Franz von Papen. But they then stabbed him in the back. Franz von Papen emerged victorious and became the new Chancellor in June 1932. His wife, by the way, was the heiress to the Villeroy and Bosch empire. In Germany, things were different to most democracies. Weimar Germany was not most democracies. But this quirk went back a long way. The Minister for Defence was appointed directly by the President, unlike all other ministers who were appointed by the Chancellor. And this practice goes back to the time of the wars against Napoleon. The Minister for Defence was not supposed ever to be the Chancellor. Before World War I, the Minister for Defence was chosen directly by the King. The sacred link between the great Prussian army and the united Germany. Minister for Defence Schleicher was a schemer and not to be trusted. Having just gotten von Papen appointed as Chancellor, he was busily manoeuvring von Papen to force him into resigning. Schleicher would then become the Chancellor. But that was a little way into the future. That would mean that the Minister for Defence was also the Chancellor, and that would prove a bad precedent on so many levels, like, for instance, when the man... Adolf Hitler took on both roles during World War II, but that too was just a glint in the eye of Hitler at this time. But not many others saw Hitler getting into power now, not people outside his party, and especially people inside his party. His own supporters saw Hitler as the man who had missed the chance to be vice-chancellor. Now he and his Nazi party were finished as far as they could see. The men of great power, 
and at the very heart of the establishment in Germany, like Brüning and Pepin and Schleicher, all saw the extreme speeches by the Nazi party and their street thugs, the SA, as evidence of the fact that they were just fringe dwellers who were never going to be contenders for real power. They were always going to be fringe dwellers. Because the Nazis and the communists didn't behave like all respectable politicians behaved, they were incapable of ever coming to power. A lesson for the future that those politicians were to learn was that you don't play cricket with the Nazis. You could have the best team in the world, the dream team, but if you're playing against the Nazi team and they elect a bat, then since they didn't play by the rules, they'd take that bat and use it to club the opposing team senseless if they were lucky and probably more likely until their bodies were lifeless. And then they would win the game. And that was how it was going to end up being played out. But it didn't look that way just a few weeks before Hitler came to power. The Nazi party and the communists each had their own powerful paramilitary wings. The German army was limited in size to 100,000 men by the Treaty of Versailles. The armies of thugs of the Nazis and the communists each easily outnumbered the national army. In war games that the army had conducted to figure out how things would go if those parties grabbed for power, the army concluded that it couldn't defend the country against Poland and the Nazis and the communists. The government of the day, they advised, had to avoid that situation arising at all costs. Luckily, though, Hindenburg wasn't interested in having that Corporal Hitler in any role as minister if he could prevent it. Now here's a question you might be able to answer. Who was the most important champagne salesman in the history of the world? And that's easy. It was Joachim von Ribbentrop. His wife was a lady of some prominence and of great value. Her name was Annalise. Her maiden name had been Henkel. She was part of the Henkel Champagne family, a label that's still famous to this day. She followed her husband's lead in belatedly joining the Nazi party when she filled her application for membership out on 1 December 1932. She was member number 1,411,594. The von Ribbentrops now gave the Nazi party access to the very highest levels of German society, something that Hitler was going to need if he was going to come to power. When you look back over Ribbentrop's life, you have to say that he was a man who had had some successes after joining the Nazi party. He negotiated and signed the all-important non-aggression pact with Russia in August 1939. That had given Hitler a free hand to go to war that year. It was said that he'd had an affair with Wallace Simpson when he was German ambassador to London after the Nazis had come to power. That wasn't a singular honour, but what he did over the next eight weeks made it possible for Hitler to come to power. It wouldn't have happened without him. Most people don't realise this. Meanwhile, the establishment men, the men who thought they were the only ones wielding power in Germany, especially Minister for War Schleicher, were now bringing about the staged confrontation with von Papen. 
making it obvious that he would have to resign as Chancellor. Someone else would have to take his place, and von Schleicher had made sure that that someone else was him. On 2 December 1932, Schleicher got his way and became the latest Chancellor of Germany. He had won. But what had he won? Von Papen had been so discredited that it looked like he would be unlikely to ever get another crack at being Chancellor. Revenge on Schleicher was now the only thing really on Papen's agenda. Adolf Hitler wasn't looking too flash either. Just a week later, when one of the most powerful men in his party, Gregor Strasser, resigned from all party offices. Strasser could easily split the Nazi party down the middle. Strasser had told a number of senior regional Nazi party officials that he considered Hitler's all-or-nothing tactics, staking everything on being appointed Chancellor and rejecting every other offer, including Vice-Chancellor, as a failure. Rumours were spreading in the Nazi party that many members agreed with Strasser. For his part, Strasser was not confident that he had much longer to live. He believed that Hitler would have him killed. So did I. A man by the name of Dr. Martin was reported to have visited Strasser on 9 December. And Strasser had said to him, Dr. Martin, I am a man marked for death. It will be a long time before we see each other again. And for your sake, I suggest you do not come here again. Whatever happens, know this. From now on, Germany is in the hands of an Austrian who is a liar of genius a former officer who is a pervert and a clubfoot. The last is worst of all. He is Satan in human form. By the pervert, he meant Ernst Röhm, a former captain of the military who was now head of the SA. His homosexuality was an open secret. The clubfoot was Goebbels, Strasser's old rival in the battle to win Hitler's favour. This amazing account of the dramatic days that led up to the improbable appointment of Hitler as Chancellor of Germany and the horrors that were to follow are based on the brilliant book The Gravediggers, The Last Winter of the Weimar Republic by Rudiger Barth and Hulk Friedrichs. In the next program, I'll take you further along the road to the beginning of the greatest disaster of the 20th century for the whole world the disasters that befell Russia and are befalling China at the hands of their communist rulers don't attract as much attention, but were and are far worse. It's okay to butcher your own people, is the lesson I take from that. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIAE.